don't give it like a the podcast platform of the Phenomenalist by Leopold Lambert. Today, the colonial administration of bodies and space with Anne-Laura Stoller. Hello everyone, today my guest is uh, Andorra Stoller, who is a professor of anthropology at the New School in New York and uh, the author of, uh, of many books, but uh, um, two in particular that we're going to talk about today, which is uh, Race and the Education of Desire and, um, and uh, um, Cornell Knowledge and Imperial Power. Uh, and uh, we, yeah, we're going to talk about that today. Uh, hello Anne. <laughs> Hello, Leopold. Uh, um, so maybe just to begin the conversation, uh, y you're working on something right now in uh, collaboration with uh, many of your friends, and I wanted to ask you about that to begin this conversation, which is um, a political concept uh, lexicon, so to speak, where you ask, uh, you ask uh, each person to write about one particular concept. Could you introduce that to us? Yes, well, it's, uh, it's a project that I'm particularly passionate about, and it's, it, it's one that in many ways is a culmination of what I've been doing for some 20, 30 years. Because my early work on colonialism and on the colonial archives really um, revolved around thinking about categories, about the movement of categories, of racial categories, how colonials used those categories, the violence of those categories, the ways in which they both cornered people and shaped them into certain kinds of subjects at the same time that people refused those. But to talk about categories is to talk also about concepts. And for me, looking at concepts and categories is something that's sort of very, very meshed. I've been working for some time on a project called Fieldwork in Philosophy, um, which is a way of thinking about the conceptual work we bring to um, what we do um, as, um, as students of social and critical social inquiry. The political concepts project, though, um, is, is very much a collaborative project and began um, with meeting the philosopher Adi Ophir, um, who was in Israel at that time and is now at Brown University. Um, and there was a, a uh, project that he was doing with his students um, in Israel um, about um, political concepts. But when I learned about the project and the more I learned about it, I was very excited about it becoming something um, that wouldn't be attached to Israel in any way. I signed the boycott, and I refused to work in any way with um, Israeli institutions and was very clear about that with Adi. And we came up about four years ago with the idea that, well, we really should have a journal, an ongoing lexicon information, no, no use of, one, of a concept by whoever we ask to do it is a definitive one. It's something that can be transformed by whoever writes about it again. But it's a lexicon, and it's a political lexicon, because it does two things. One, it looks at concepts, political concepts that are out there in the world and are already acknowledged as political, right? Ones that we are familiar with, whether that be freedom or liberal or conservative or those that just easily come to your mind. 
But the ones that interest me as well, and I think this comes out of my own feminism um, and out of a sort of long, you know, Marxist tradition in some way as well, is to understand those concepts that are what I call subjacent concepts, concepts in waiting in some sense that have a potential in them that are not actually designated as political at all, but that as we track them and trace them, we find that they're doing an enormous amount of political work. And for me, that's what I chose to do for the first concept that I did for the first volume. And I took the concept of colony. We know colonialism is a political concept. Everybody knows that. Everybody knows imperialism is a political concept, empire. But colony kind of sits there in this benign way as a noun. And what I tried to do is track the itinerary, the historical etymology, but really the sort of political logic that underwrites colony in all of its very, its manifestations over the last 150 years. And what kept coming up, and this was really not intentional, was that there were all these references to colonies agricoles, which are these agricultural colonies that were made for abandoned and delinquent children in 19th century France, and penal colonies, another kind of colony, and settler colonies, that, and military colonies, um, that are not just homonyms, that is, they're not just using the same word, they actually, it turns out historically, are tethered in all sorts of ways by the logic that underwrites their enclosure, their confinement, the movement, the kinds of populations put in them. But even more so, and more interesting and exciting and thinking through the colony, is that it's a very ambiguous term, that it gets replaced and substituted easily by the word camp very often. So it's not just that the colony stays there in this benign form, it's that the colony, the penal colony, sometimes is used also as a military camp and can be transformed back to a settler colony. And what I've been trying to trace over the last few years, um, both inside the colonial archive, but much more importantly outside the formal colonial archive, is what I call this political matrix of colony and camp that are in deadly embrace. And what brings them together and makes them a bud and makes them substitutable and what it helps us understand about the reach of what Foucault called the archipel carcéral, the, ar the, the um, carceral archipelago. And I've tried to expand it to argue that analytically and politically that we can't just think of the carceral archipelago as Foucault defined it in Discipline and Punish as an archipelago that expands across Europe through its social institutions and outside of, of, of the institutions of confinement, but that there is a carceral archipelago of empire that joins up all of these different forms of camp, encampment, colony, and to one, um, not synthetic in the sense that they all, all come together at the same points, but actually is a kind of depositif, a rizzo, a network of forms of governance and forms of the use of space um, that um, ally with one another. Mm -hmm. Well, and 
I suppose something that that uh, link uh, link all those colonies together as well is uh, the way they're being uh, ad administrated and how the the administration has a has a very very uh, uh, um, uh, thought through organization to to implement its Absolutely. power upon bodies and I think that's great because that's that's exactly what we're going to talk about today and um, and so um, to really enter this topic of um, of um, the administration of sexuality and family uh, within within the colonial society, um, uh, I think the, the first thing the first thing that we should say is is that some something you say yourself in your work is that it's not about saying that the colonial state was more complex than what we thought it was, but uh, uh, even though it may be the case, but it's not more complex at a at a at an ethical level. It's just more complex in the sense that there's a production. Of there is a concern that is being transformed into a, a production of uh, of a, an organization, a, an administrative organization, and so and so you you uh, you have those uh, two populations in a given uh, colonial state, which is the indigenous population and the and the colonial population, and uh, they're not as um, they're interacting with each other. So there is a, a, a need for administrating this. Relationship between them and and their and your work has been uh, dedicating a lot of efforts in uh, in uh, in showing how something like sexuality was was administrated. So um, uh, I think I'd like I'd like to hear you uh, uh, speaking about how uh, a state comes to decide, for example, what is a legitimate birth or an illegitimate birth, which which is a terminology we hear a lot, but somehow we don't we don't really see, we don't really we don't always think about almost the absurdity of it. It's like what what is an illegitimate birth, and how does um, how does this, the relationship between those two populations are being are being organized? Um, I think one of the first places to start when we talk about the management of sexuality. I think one imagines somehow that what we're talking about is that they're really inside the bedroom, mm -hmm. that the state is, is I mean, there, there is a, an empire of the night. Um, as Kutza said once, um, you know, there's, there's an empire of the night and there's an empire of the day, and they work very, very entwined together. But it's, it's a much more subtle kinds of set of pressures that are placed upon people when we talk about the management of sexuality. Because it's never just about the management of sexuality alone. It's never hermetically sealed that, you know, we have to determine who sleeps on top and who sleeps on the bottom. It's not at that level. It's at the level of what is respectable, what is not. What sexual relations are condoned. And therefore, if they're condoned, is the product of that relationship of that intercourse, a person who is going to be given the rights to citizenship or be a subject. And within the colonies, a lot of this was, was debated over and over for decades and decades um, in very, very intricate ways. Whether one possibility was to have European white men marry Native women and therefore have those children be brought into the fold of being white, or much, much more frequently, were these relationships condoned um, 
and the offspring of those relationships would be considered illegitimate and therefore would be thrown back into the category of native? Or was that population to be cordoned off as a particular population of the mixed blood? And the mixed blood and how that even as a category arises, where it arises as a politically charged one, um, whether that population will be considered white but not quite, um, if that turns out, if that's going to be the most dangerous category, or is that um, a category that can be domesticated into becoming this sort of under, under what, what, you know, um, the kind of lumpen proletariat of the white middle class, where they would be placed, whether they would be given the welfare that whites were given, whether they would be folded back into the native population, was much more important than whether they were legitimate or, or legitimate. That was an effect. The legitimacy was a way of cordoning off these class classification without using the word race. Mm -hmm. So race underwrote these systems so violently at the very same time as that these were agents of the of the state who were not any more nasty than you and me, who would say very, very clearly, I'm against racism, but we must keep these boundaries clear. Most of the um, of the censuses that were done didn't even have race in. Certainly didn't have mixed blood in as a category. That doesn't mean that that was not a category designated, set apart, and discriminated against. And um, uh, from from uh, what I read from you is that um, it is as much a, a biological um, a categorization of bodies, but also a behavioral one yeah. and. And it's interesting how yeah. some some would be. Um, I mean, it it really needs to be both to to be considered. Absolutely, and I, I think that's so important. Of, of marking that Leopold and something that a lot of people didn't quite get in a lot of my work because I've been arguing that for some twenty years, is that biology is just such a not minor, but it's only a small part of how race has been defined. We've assumed that early, early racisms were based on biology. The real racism, the hard racism, was biological racism. Mm -hmm. And now we've moved to a new racism, which is a cultural racism. This is a totally erroneous notion of how race has developed as a category. From the very get-go, from the very beginning when we start looking, it has always been about cultural accoutrements, cultural, what I've called pretty consistently, the competencies, competencies, cultural competencies that were displayed or not displayed, whether a child would sit on their haunches rather than a chair, whether a child would turn to Javanese rather than to Dutch, whether what foods one wanted to eat, where a person lived, each of these, and really one of the most exciting to think with and about that really opens to so much of our interest now in sentiment and affect is whether when one sought to have European equivalence, whether one actually felt at home in a European setting. Now, how that gets to feel at home was a term used in the legal record 
right? This is if the person did not feel at home by the age of seven, they could not be European. Mm -hmm. Well, how do you get to feel at home in a European setting? What do you need? What is the space you need to be surrounded by? Who needs to be closest to you? If you have a native mother who speaks Javanese and not Dutch, that becomes almost impossible. You can't get into the European school unless you already speak Dutch. So when you're entering an elementary school, it's already you're already, without ever using the word race, you're already partitioned out. Um, I've been arguing for some time that to, 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 to not appreciate that is to really misconstrue how the hardness of race now. That it's not a softer, more complex racism that we engage in, but that is one that is very similar in some ways to that configuration of the biological, the cultural, the sensory, the ways in which the sensory mm -hmm. plays into this as well. One of the interesting things about looking at, at who can become part of the civil service and how you have to become a, a, a colonial official is that having local knowledge is never enough. In fact, having too much no local knowledge directly through the channel of knowing about Java would not give you access to getting into the civil service. You need to return to Europe, learn about those customs and those ways of being through a European eye, then come back. So you would think that, well, an Indo population, mixed blood population, they know everybody, they can be the, the mediators between, between colonizer and colonized. No, no, no. They know too much. Those affinities are not clear enough. You have to go through that training of that training of being white in a particular way and, and, and the training and that disposition, dispositions towards being in the colonies. Mm -hmm. It's a learning process of learning how to be one, right? And uh, also I guess that from the, um, so far we, we talked about, a, let's say, a hypothetical child, uh, a Métis child, Uh, and wondering whether what would make this child uh, a part of their of the European citizenship, uh, but it's also a very gendered problem because uh, so far we kind of assumed that, uh, uh, for example, it would be a, a European man having a child with a, an indigenous woman. But obviously, if it's an if it would be a, a European woman having a child with an indigenous man. This is a whole other problem. So there's, there's very much uh, questions of gender involved in this uh, process. Very much questions of gender involved in the whole legal system, mm -hmm. right? Because what happens to a, a European woman who would go with a native man is that she loses her citizenship, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, and uh, and that's, that that makes me think of something uh, uh, I read uh, in your in your book as well. It's it's uh, the um, The particular care in which um, uh, the legal the legislation uh, regarding uh, rape has been has been established. Well, it's in always it. been asymmetric. Yeah, and it remains that mm. right. But but it it was very interesting because you you mentioned that sometimes some cases were just uh, it it was very much directed at at servants, for example, in a in a given family, and the servant was having a very specific uh, specific role within a given family and and in a, in a house and the architectural aspect of it is important as well in, in, in how uh, something called a rep would actually just be the servant being at, in the wrong room at the wrong time absolutely sit, or 
or even on the doorstep of a room, mm-hmm. right? So it's very much about about where one and how one inhabits the space and when it's appropriate to inhabit that space. But that makes it very complicated because if part of the privilege of being European and the colonies is to have access to those servants whenever one likes and when, and to serve and in the most intimate way. I mean, this was true under slavery, too, in the U.S. I mean, it's true in so many places. At the same time, too much of that is, is, is the most subversive and the most dangerous thing of all. So you could have a, a, a Javanese nursemaid for a Dutch child, but the manuals given to white women, young white women as they were coming out, was make sure that the child does not sleep in the same bed with that native nursemaid, but that she sleeps on the floor next to his bed or preferably at, on the doorstep outside of his room on the floor. Now just look at that. I mean, that means we're talking about having a certain kind of door space. The architecture of the, of the houses was crucial. They had very elaborate plans for where the, the domestic servants would be, where they would enter, um, where they would leave, what, what spaces that they would inhabit. Yeah. Well, I, th- I think it's been argued that uh, uh, an architectural invention like the corridor is very much born out of this kind of logics where you yeah. did a, a sort of uh, subspace in the, within Absolutely. the house where the servants would, would be uh, um, uh, living pretty much. Yeah, that's, that's, that's fascinating because the corridor is also a really powerful space in colonialism more generally, right? Uh, whether that be called the security zone, you know, in Israel-Palestine, the place where no one can be, but if you are, you're between and not really in. Mm-hmm. Those corridors, are, and the thickness of those corridors, yeah. right? Are I call really, that the thickness of the line, which is... The, that's right, the, the thickness the of the line. Of the, Absolutely, the of, thickness of yeah. the line. Because that's pretty much what I usually say, the only, the only medium that architects are using is, is lines, and but lines have no thickness by definition, right. but because the way they materialize within architecture involves a line, so you, you, you do find this very ambiguous uh, space within which has not been thought diagrammatically because you cannot think of the thickness of the line di- diagra- diagram. That's fantastic. That's fa- because I am always thinking of the thickness of the line. For me, the, that thickness of the line, I've never heard that expression before, but that's exactly what most of my work has been about because that thickness of that line is where all these interstitial populations and these liminal sites of racial belonging get shuffled and remade. It's not like the line is drawn, and therefore we know who white, who's white and who's not white. That line is, it's, it's protean, it's, it's malleable, it's movable. But I also think that's one of the f- key features of imperial formations themselves, that the imaginary of a line between the nation that's France and the one that's the Netherlands, and this... That's not the way empire ever worked. That was always an ambiguous, fuzzy line, right? That was always a line that was porous, that had much, much more density, materiality to it, that could be moved about. And, in fact, if we look at the history of empires, it was never based on lines at all, mm-hmm. right? It was about all of these degrees of, of gradated rights, mm-hmm. And 
sovereignties that could be shifted and changed. In fact, I was so funny. I was looking at your volume in the Phenomulus, and somebody makes almost exactly this point that I wrote about several years ago. Um, the piece of Lucarelli's Nothing to oh. Hide, mm-hmm. in which he says it's... Um, um, if contemporary existential violence linked to immaterial work exploitation is no longer perpetrated through physical borders, but also through the deliberate blurring of marks, limits, and lines. Mm. Well, that's basically what I've argued for imperialist formations, that we've really misconstrued, and that's what this new book on imperial duress partly is about, is that we've really misconstrued the model of what of how an empire works and how colonialism works. If we imagine that they're about marking sharp, lines, limits, but that they instead work with a blurring of those and the possibility of changing them um, as a strategic depositif at a particular moment in response to, as Foucault said, a depositif is to an urgency mm-hmm. in, in command and in control. Uh, yeah, and I think... Th- uh, what, what what I was really interested in uh, while reading you is um, is also how holistic this uh, this um, this uh, administration uh, so blurring as we would say uh, is and uh, and uh, we can I mean I'm always going back to this uh, quote from Fanon saying saying it's not just about it's not just about whatever touches the land it's 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 very much atmospheric it's a it's, a, it's a breathing. It's a breathing. So I mean, in the atmosphere, I think we also get this this non-sharp aspect of things as well. So um, it's. I mean, it's it's why I use the word sensibility so much. Yeah. You know, it's 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 how to be, right? And there's so many lines that are drawn that are invisible lines drawn um, in the sand, right? Mm. And so. Um, which you can really see with Duras's work, yeah. right? Barrage contre le Pacifique, Siwal. It's all about those those lines drawn in the sand, right? In in Java, you mean? No, no I mean in Indochine. Oh, okay, in in, in, in the China. Um, go, going back to this uh, to this book, uh, Colonial Knowledge uh, and Imperial Power, uh, and going back to this idea of, of architecture, but architecture not necessarily simply as a organization of space again uh, as a diagrammatical way but very much in these atmospherical yeah. uh, realms uh, you you've write that um, in regarding children because children are, are really an important part of this book uh, uh, as, as we mentioned earlier but again it's not just about knowing if the child the Métis child would be uh, uh, would be a citizen of the European uh, uh, empire or not but more, but also very much like uh, children who were born from both European parents and looking at looking at what um, uh, how how it could be influenced and and how everything needs to be thought to be to be uh, very much uh, preserving their uh, the whiteness of the child and uh, and so you talk about you said you said that the colonial po- uh, the the colonial politic uh, architects were very much interested in uh, in instruction, education, schools, houses. Um, the the we were talking about the places within the house that are uh, uh, dedicated to servants, but also within a given city. How how those um, how the neighborhoods would be uh, would be um, uh, organized as well, and. Um, 
and going further is that even the the medical guides, the educational educational books, and and you talk about how how there is an incredible con um, concern of parents about how to educate their their children, to, uh, to raise their children, and um, so I'd, I'd like I'd like to hear more about this almost holistic uh, 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 organization yeah. that probably you don't see in the colonial country itself, like uh, 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 in their well, I think it's all to do with with a kind of epidemiology of of rapes in some way, is and they were very sophisticated in their understanding that there were contagions, contaminations, mm. right? We go back to the atmosphere again. It goes back to the atmosphere again. It was all about. I mean, there were huge debates on at what age. Can um, uh, should 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 a, a, a child um, you know not um, do we need to attend to the child? So they started well, children who are twelve, and when they go to school, and they went no 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 that's just too late. Then they went back and said no we really have to start in elementary school because that's when a child starts really formulating its sense of itself. And they said no 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 too too late much too late. Better go back to the Bavarschollen, to the nursery, which is what Germany started in the 1850s. They started all the kindergarten movement. That's where it all began about nationalism, right? You start with the Bavar, the, the, the care of, of, of the kids in the school, in the, in the garden, a, a, a nursery area. Then they went, no, that's too late too. We better go back to the nursemaids. And we better go back to who's giving the milk. Because in the milk, if the child has a wet nurse, the child's immediately already contaminated. But contaminated by what? By the milk, by the smell, by the eroticism, by a certain other rhythm, by something that is emitted in some other form. And the fact that these were debates not among a small marginal group in the colonies, these were debates that were actually articulated by the minister of colonies and the king about nursery schools, about kindergartens, about breastfeeding, really has to alert us to what we ever imagined we understood about the political. Whatever we imagine we understand where political management and political logics take place and how much they're embodied. But not only because we're feminists now or into critical theory or we're, or we're feminists, or, but because this ease were the technologies of rule. These were already deeply, deeply embedded in their understanding of what could go wrong and their fear that they never knew when something could go wrong. So there was always the fear. The, the French had this enormously, but so did the Dutch, so did so many of the uh, different uh, imperial empires, of that people would pass, right? That they'd wear the right clothes. There would be... F and they weren't the real thing. They weren't really white. And they actually had a term for it. In the, in the, the French had a term which they called um, fraudulent recognitions, that people were recognized who were really not white. And the Dutch had an expression, gemunkiered fabricated Europeans. They were fabricated Europeans, manufactured Europeans. And this is a fascinating, fascinating category because it was totally contradictory. They're, supposedly, the civilizing mission was to make them as European as possible and for them to adapt. The second people adapted too much, 
at access to ways of verbalizing, vocalizing, articulating what their rights might be. Aha! That became the site of subversion. Um, and, you know, given how few mixed bloods there actually were compared to the millions upon millions of Javanese, the amount of, of administrative, managerial energy focused on that group is really, it's really striking. You really have to say, why? What's going on here to make this both, you know, so dangerous and so potentially um, a, a source of disorder? Well, listening to you, I, I really, I'm really interested to hear you more about this this aspect of the the temptativeness of, of uh, the way the colonial state seems to work. I mean, it's it, we we always tentativeness. Do you mean to yeah, tempta- temptative? It's like it's, it's it's very much ex, ex, an experiment. It, it's experimenting uh, all the time. Like we we always think of yeah. uh, an essence of the political colonial. Uh, organization yeah. when actually it, listening to you it seems to always uh, based on this fear right. it, it seems to always try to adjust itself and go back and, and, try, and try again and so I mean it, it made me the, the only time I felt that I, I've been describing that in, a, in, a, in some things that I'm a little bit more familiar with is, is uh, in the case of Gaza actually and how hmm. the has the Israeli state has very much in, to, in, this, uh, in this regard a, a colonial uh, 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 colonial uh, poli- policies uh, applied to it, and how, because of this dependency in terms of uh, resources, food, electricity, water, uh, um, fuel, uh, and how there is mm. um, an always re- reiterated attempt to give just the minimum. Just a, just a minimum to 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 make things not uh, to make to m- not to have a humanitarian disaster happening. Like so, there is always there is always there's always a calculating yeah. and sort of negotiated and balancing act mm-hmm. being done there. But what it also leads to is a very kind of anxious temporality, because one of the things about installing regimes of security, and it's, it's a truism to say it now because we have so much great work on it, is how much insecurity it produces mm-hmm. rather than security. But it also produces what I would argue, and what I've argued in along the archival grain, but also elsewhere, is it produces this anxious, anticipatory, conditional tense, a temporal tense, in which one is always anticipating, what if... Mm-hmm. They turn into this. What if we gave them too much of X? Then they would use it the wrong way. What if we do... So it's a constantly recuperative, recursive project. And that's why I talk about in the new book about a recursive history, Mm -hmm. is that it's not a history that repeats itself, but that turns back to look at other things that maybe it could do differently or that it can get legitimation from or to rewrite that history by looking back and saying, you see, we've always had that problem. That's why we need to have these harsh security measures now. Because if you look back at that history, it was already there. Mm-hmm. So it plays on that, the past, rewrites that history, returns to it over and over again. And it's that recursive reiterative quality that I think actually captures not the colonialism versus the post-colony, 
but actually why it keeps folding in upon itself, which is why I use that language of um, Deleuze's, of the fold, yeah. um, that it's a history that folds back on itself. It's not that Foucault was after rupture and continuity. It was, at, it was after understanding how something is drawn from the past in pieces, turned, re, reused, amplified, transformed, and becomes part of a new regime of security in itself. Mm-hmm. Well, you, you just evoked your uh, new forthcoming book, and, and uh, since we've been talking about it uh, the two times we met, I, I, I would like to ask you about this uh, this political concept uh, uh, that you taught me because I never I never heard about it before, uh, and I heard it since then because that's always how things work. Uh, this uh, this terms of duress, I think you 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 that's mm. one of your particular yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. focus right now. Yeah, I love the word duress. I love it as a French word that's no longer used. Duress. Evidently. Uh, <laughs> evidently, it's um, spelled in English, as we know, D U R E S S. But in the old French, it was duress, D-U-R-E-S-S-E. But the etymology, and I see it as a political etymology of violence in duress, is its attachments to that, that root sense of dur, of something which is hard and hardened, which is about to endure, to last, to have some kind of tenacity, some resilience in itself, Um, duress is the pressure and the weight that is put upon you. It's, it's in many of its, its, um, its definitions in the, you know, most complete Oxford Dictionary. The first word used is hardness and um, severity, but it's also compulsion. It's also coercion. It's also, though, endurance. I mean, du- endurance is from that same verb, root of durer, right? To endure something and to hold out, to stand in the face of it. So one can see this duresse and durance and endurance and the durability. That's another word that's, that, that there's a durability, there's a tenacity, there's an intractability in the way imperial forms hold on, but not in the same form. This, they're not mimetic versions of one another. They just repeat and repeat and repeat, and we can just see it in that form. So this word for me is doing multiple kinds of work. Mm-hmm. And I give the title Imperial Duress to this new book precisely to capture both the duration of time, the durability of materiality and space, right, and the endurance mm-hmm. That people who live of people who live under those systems, mm. because duress being an effect, one cannot go without the other. There cannot be any duress if there is no endurance. So there needs to be a body on which it needs and to be which applied. it that, exactly a body on which it is performed, a body on which. Um, but the the, the 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 etymology is so powerful because it's from the word in Latin "dulitia," hardness, from "dulus," hard. Then the old French suffix "s" from the Latin, and all of these come together in this, um, you know, extraordinary way. To, to, the word "dur" was a verb actually in English at one time, and oh. is no longer. Um, so I'm, 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 I'm not just playing with words here. I'm actually playing with what I see as a political 
etymology, which is also both an uh, affective, afflicting one as well. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think it's very clear, you know, just playing with words by going back to the very beginning of this conversation in the fact that we need to, before even starting to engage with what is it that we're describing and what is it we are actually struggling against, we need to establish a language that is that's right that gives us the means to actually challenge yeah. this, uh, well, rather than rather than reinforce it. Right? I think that's that's great, Leopold. That's so much what this new book is about, and that's why its subtitle is called "Concept Work." for our times, because it's arguing that concepts do an enormous amount of work. And in some ways, we've learned too well and have taken it to be too self-evident that concepts, as cognitive psychologists tell us, and as people working in cognition tell us, are these points of stability in our world, right, that order the chaos around us. But I'm far more convinced that concepts actually have an enormous capacity to change and that it's there, as Pierre Marchery would argue, there's a fragility to them. And that what's as important is their filiations and fragilities as their fixities. Mm -hmm. So this whole book, in a sense, is about understanding and working off the edges of those fragilities and the filiations and why we've gotten, how we've gotten bound by these conceptual conventions and habits of what we imagine we know. And they become obvious, and we don't have to ask, well, we know what colonialism is, right? We know what imperialism is. We know what the post-colony. And I'm saying, actually, why don't we be a little bit more humble in the face of those terms? Mm-hmm. Take those much more as terms that are constantly in motion in, in, in very strategic kinds of ways. Well, and thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me today, and I'm very glad we got to link uh, uh, those books that are that have a, a, a few uh, that are a few years old with this uh, brand new books that will uh, come out in what 2015? Uh, yeah, maybe the end of 2015 okay. if we're lucky. Well, let's hope. And uh, uh, yeah, no, thanks again. Thank you.